First Peter, in, a, in an overview, to maybe catch you up a little bit, and it's good for us to remind ourselves from time to time that uh, Peter really has this... Thank you, honey. Uh, Peter has this overarching uh, thought and idea, uh, and that is this, and I think it's applicable for today. I think it's very applicable in our society. I think it's extremely applicable in the church, and that is, is there's hope in the midst of suffering. There's hope in the midst of suffering. Maybe a good summary statement that I've picked up from the Bible Project is this. It says, God's people are misunderstood, are a misunderstood minority living under a different king and in a different kingdom. Persecution actually for the believer is a strange gift. We've all been challenged in the last quite a few weeks to, to realize that persecution is really a strange gift. It's actually a good thing to suffer for God uh, for following Him. So persecution actually is a strange gift to the church because it offers a chance to show others the incredibly generous love of Jesus fueled by the hope of His return. That's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the essence of Peter's message. That's the essence of why he's encouraging uh, these folks. And there's kind of three... Uh, key points as we've worked through the first four chapters, a couple of things to keep in mind. There's a, uh, we have a new identity in the family of God as Christ followers. Uh, and let's be honest, it's a hard switch sometimes. It's a difficult transition to, to, to uh, transition to this new identity, into this new spiritual DNA that, that Jesus inserts with his Holy Spirit as you come into his family as you trust in Him for that first time, as you uh, surrender to Him as both Savior and Lord. But we have this new identity in the family of God. Believers have a new hope, a new identity, definitely a new family. We're the new covenant people of God. We're now the temple of God. We're a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, Peter calls us. We are the kingdom of God. It's not some mystical far-off thing. It's not... Uh, you are the body, the bride of Christ. You are the kingdom of God. You are the people of God in that way. And uh, it's a great thing to be found in that, even though that at times there's going to be suffering. And Peter talks a lot about that. Second point in that quick review is that suffering is a way to witness for Jesus. Knowing that regardless of the persecution, our suffering will be vindicated. He talks in those terms, and he uses like the picture of baptism. He uses the story of Noah uh, and ha- what happened there in, in the early chapters of Genesis as a, a way of demonstrating that uh, our suffering will be vindicated. And the third thing, and really where we're going today, is suffering in light of future hope. A good place to start is actually with the words of our Savior, the words of Jesus that have inspired and guided these very apostles that wrote the New Testament. Uh, one of the many things I love about the Bible is the incredible accuracy uh, amongst the biblical writers, both New and Old Testament. But as we're in the New Testament, eight different people wrote the New Testament. Uh, James, John, Peter, Luke, Matthew, Mark, Jude, and Paul. Eight guys, eight different perspectives, eight different life experiences. But get this, they were eight guys that were in unity on the message and the walk. They were in complete unity. Now, 
<clears throat> I'm not going to uh, look over a few things. There were some times where they had some friction. There were some times where there was some, we, t- we talked about this in a conversation uh, this week, where there's a few sparks. Ironing, iron sharpening iron, guess what happens? It's a violent occurrence. And there's going to be sparks that fly. But if you look at the total of the work that, that they have produced as eight different fellas, they're in unity on their message and definitely unity in the walkout. So they're in unity. Eight different guys all speaking with one voice. Eight guys that helped reshape and redefine the world through what Jesus was doing in their lives. And eight men who had one thing in mind. They had one single thing in mind, and that was sharing the person that saved them. Sharing the guy that changed their identity. Sharing the message of hope to a hurting world. Sharing the hope of of Christ to a world that was just way out there in so many ways and involved in all kinds of wickedness. They were sharing Jesus, the one man that changed their world forever. In Matthew 5 uh, is really a good place to start, and I'm just going to read through just a few verses. I actually have quite a few here, but for the sake of time, I think that, uh, well, maybe I'll just go through it. Uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he starts off there in Matthew 5. I'll read the first 12 verses, maybe. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And the key verses I want to hone in on is 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you, falsely for my name's sake. Verse 12 says, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I mentioned last week, uh, who signs up, who signs up for tough times, right? Like if you think about your story when somebody shared Christ with you for the first time or, or that occasion where you uh, first put your hope and trust in Jesus, was there any mention of persecution? I doubt it. Let's be honest. I doubt it. It's usually not there. That's not the sales pitch, right? That's not what we share. Hey, come and follow Jesus with me because your life is going to be horrible after that here on earth. That's not how we share the gospel in our culture. But we lead people down a path that thinks that nothing is going to be okay because we don't give them the full truth. Because we don't tell them that if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to be persecuted. That if you're going to follow Jesus, difficult things are going to happen. And so we bring people along in a a pseudo-sense that life's going to be perfect, there's never going to be anything go wrong, and the first time the wheels come off the bus, they're out of here. We have to be real with people. 
We have to be honest with people. But we also have to give them the hope. Because here's the deal. You're invincible if you're in Christ. Nothing's going to kill you for eternity. Nothing's going to take you out forever. They may kill the flesh. They may take the body. They may march you out of here or march me out. I was asked this week, what's going to happen if they roll out a bunch more uh, you know, restrictions or whatever? My response was, I'm going to preach the gospel until they haul me off in cuffs. And if that's the case, then we'll have a perfect sermon illustration for the exact chapters we've been preaching. We've been studying. And Josh will pay my bail. <laughs> Guaranteed. I'm not worried about that. Right? We're in on this. We've talked about it. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. We have to stop being afraid of death. If there's ever a people in this world that should not fear death, it should be us because we have the hope of eternity in front of us. We have the hope of, etern- of eternal life in Christ. So none of this, this is, a, this is a test run for the rest of it, as it were. Now you guys got me all fired up. Peter's been circling around this idea of suffering for Jesus' sake. And literally taking these words. I wonder if when Peter sat down to, to think this out and to write this down, if that Sermon on the Mount was on his mind. If that Sermon on the Mount was, was, was present in his thinking. I believe it was. Last week we kind of ended the third part, the suffering in light of uh, uh, talking about suffering. I want to dive right in. I, I got into chapter 4 last week. I would like to revisit it just a little bit. Um, I was reminded also that, uh, in a funny way, and in a good way, that uh, last week, about halfway through my sermon, I said, and that's my introduction. <laughs> I got halfway through. Oh, that concludes my introduction. Let's get into what we're talking about. But I think it's really good to, to overlap a little bit. It's kind of like, I put it in this way in my mind, is that we're family. We're having a family conversation about the things of God. And the conversation lasts from bit to bit, just like you guys at home around the table. You're going to have a conversation, and like two or three days later, or that next evening, you're going to be like, remember what we were talking about? And you go back and talk about that, and you, you kind of revisit it to move on. Same concept here in the Word of God. So let's jump right into chapter 4. Um, Dennis has assured us all over the course of years that uh, you can really uh, listen faster than you can read. Is that right? Can't you pick up more? You can listen faster than you can read. Some people would say that's not true of me. But uh, let's jump into chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with that same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Grabbing on to this concept is a big, big, big component of your identity switch, of understanding who you are in Christ. Arm your mind, Peter says. We're called to arm up our minds just like Jesus. What does that look like? How can I take that, that verse there, verse 1 of chapter 4, how can I take it right off of the page and put it to work later on this afternoon or tomorrow morning or tomorrow at school or tomorrow at work? 
How, how, how can I do that? Here's a couple of verses that you can jump and saddle up with that verse and a couple of uh, encouragements. The first encouragement I want to uh, start with is Romans 2.12. And I'll let you look those verses up. Uh, but here's the summary. Resist worldly ways and their patterns of thinking. Resist worldly ways and the world's pattern of thinking. So tomorrow morning, tomorrow at work, you're presented with something, you're presented with an idea, you're presented with a project, you're presented with a, a, a problem, you're presented with something that you know is like, starts to put the hair up on the back of your neck, starts to go against your faith, start analyzing. Am I, am I at the point where I have to give over to worldly ways and worldly thinking, or can I put the brakes on right here? My encouragement is is we put the brakes on it right there you're flipping through the channel some evening or you're on the computer stuff pops up show looks enticing put the brakes on it put the brakes on it. you're listening to the news you're listening to the news whatever channels your flavor there's something that starts to go cross grain with what you know is true analyze it and put the brakes on Paul says in Romans 12, 2, that we are to resist worldly ways and worldly patterns of thinking. Second point is to filter my words, thoughts, and desires in front of the throne of God. Where do I get that? Psalm 19, verses 14. Filter my words, thoughts, and desires. You can put actions in there. It's probably appropriate. Your actions are going to flow out of your thoughts and desires. But filter my words, thoughts, desires, and actions in front of the Word of God. What's the filter? We live in a culture where there is no filter. Or the filter just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And everything is okay. Like whatever you want to believe in, however you want to see yourself, however you want to define yourself, and that everybody else is wrong, and you're right, but they're right for them. But there's no consistency amongst our culture anymore. The consistency for the Christ follower is to filter our thoughts, our words, our actions, and our desires in front of God himself and say, Father, is this right? Is this wrong? If we don't know, if we're unsure, if we're questioning, filter it before the throne. God, I mentioned this last week, God has a good and perfect plan for his people. We have to believe that. There's no other option. Third point that uh, I want to bring up to emphasize this idea of arming ourselves with the same mind as Christ. And actually, really, you see Jesus in the life of the Gospels. I can bring out passage after passage where you see Jesus arming himself in the same way. Being tempted by Satan. Being uh, 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 tricked and, 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 uh, or trying to be having people come to try to entrap him, to try to get him to say or to do something. You see Jesus doing the same thing. You see it right before the cross, too, where he heads off to the garden to pray. He's filtering everything in the physical life in front of God in the spiritual. Psalms 19, verse 14, you can look it up. little homework. Who gives out homework at church? It doesn't seem right. Uh, the third thing is, is refuse to follow behaviors of the old man. 
Refuse to follow the behaviors of the old man. Part of understanding our identity in Christ, this new spiritual DNA that we've been given at salvation, part of living a life by the Spirit is the recognition of that's who I used to be. That's who I, I don't have to. I don't have to embrace those ways anymore. I don't have to embrace those thought patterns anymore. I don't have to embrace those habits anymore. I don't have to incorporate. I don't have to try to, you know, Jesus didn't come into the world just to make your life better so, because there was something missing in your party, so you just needed one little component, and that's Jesus. And he's here just to make what you got cooking better. That's not the way it works. He came into the world to to show us a completely different way that we would follow him and flush what we got going on because it doesn't work and it's going to send us to hell and create a whole new avenue for us to live. A whole new way to think, a whole new way to process, a whole new way to believe, a whole new way to act, a whole new way to encourage other people, and a whole new way to follow him. So don't think that Jesus is just the topping on the cake and all the rest of your life of cake is something special and you just needed a little more and call it Jesus. That isn't Christianity. That's not the way it works. If that's what you're thinking or the way that you came to faith in Christ, uh, we have to have a visit. (laughs) Um, You need to find people that are good, godly, spiritual people around you and you need their investment in in your life. That's the bottom line with that. So, refuse to follow behaviors. You could say thought patterns. All of those things. Words. Um, desires. I'll tell you, it's an overhaul. If you knew me at 17, you would not want me here. I'll just tell you that. Uh, my language was Horrible. And I'm saying this by way of confession. My mom's sitting right here in the fourth row. Right? I would not have been the person. I tell, I tell uh, we, talk, we joke about this. We've joked about this for 25 years. I was looking for a baseball scholarship to the same college that Tammy went to in the middle of Kansas. Little tiny town, McPherson, Kansas. Absolutely in the middle of nowhere. Just off the interstate is McPherson, Kansas. You know what McPherson, Kansas is popular for? I bet you nobody in this room... I don't know if that's true. We'll argue about it later, Mom. We'll argue about it later. You don't want me to tell him? Why? I'm going to tell you because now everybody's like, what's, what's the deal with McPherson, Kansas? And I've been right by, this, um, right by this fertilizer plant. It's the place where the fertilizer plant was that Timothy McVeigh bought the uh, fertilizer to bomb the... Oklahoma City bombing. Isn't that kind of a goofy scenario? Why did I get there? Oh, I know why. Uh, I was going to go to the same college, the small Christian college in McPherson, Kansas. And we joke about it now because if I would have went there right from high school, just straight away, uh, I don't think that we would be married. Because I wasn't the uh, dude that she was looking for uh, categorically in any sort of a fashion. And God had to do a work in me. He had to turn my world upside down. He had to save me from that slavery of sin and, and recreate me into His image. And then guess what? A few years later, I went down 
for two weeks to visit my sister and Matt Tammy. Refused to follow the behaviors of the old man. It's amazing the journey. As I even tell the story, it's amazing the journey that God has taken us through in that process. But Peter reminds them, and by virtue of them, reminds us uh, that they've wasted enough years. Let's jump back into the text, verse 3. For we spend enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. In other words, in living uh, worldly. When we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable, <coughs> abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. Hey, people are going to say, when you change, people are going to speak evil of you. Maybe you've had that situation in your life in the past, or currently even, that when your life changes, and you start following Christ, people are going to say, what is wrong with her? What's wrong with him? How come you don't want to come over and party anymore? How come you don't want to, you know, go to the bar? How come you don't want to do this? How come you don't want to do that. Uh, These activities that Peter lists here, uh, they're not backyard barbecue activities. This this list of of sinful activity was part of the cultural worship in the Greco-Roman world. It's part of how they saw they were pleasing to God, as it were. That's where this stuff comes from. In the first century, these were activities that were associated with worshiping the thousands of gods in that culture. Peter says that they're not off the hook for their sins by any stretch of the imagination. Verse 5 says, They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. Peter's reminding them and also us that there's going to be an accounting before Jesus. In light of all that, in light of the suffering that we perhaps may endure, I want to bring out one dynamic uh, that I've been thinking about this week as we keep jumping forward, and that is this. If you can envision with me, get this mind in your picture, that, that this is the first century church. Right? And, and kind of an arrow coming this way. Is it up on the, did you do the arrow up on the screen thing? I, you guys didn't do that. But there's kind of first century church is kind of pointing this way. And we're kind of, uh, in, in modern days and today, we're kind of pointing an arrow kind of pointing back. The first century church knew nothing but persecution. They didn't know freedoms like we know freedoms. They were born and raised, as it were, in persecution, in trials and tribulations. Slowly they were relieved of that pressure when Constantine decriminalized Christianity in 313 A.D. with the Edict of Milan. The church today, especially here, especially in North America or developed countries, we know nothing but freedoms, right? We've known nothing but freedoms. I don't know anything else. I've never lived anywhere else in the world. So we've known nothing but freedoms And we're starting to see those signs of heat and feel the pressure of pushback. So on one hand, you have the first century church coming out of persecution over 300 years, plus or minus. And you see where we are kind of feeling, we're all kind of feeling that. All of Christianity is feeling that. I've talked to pastors recently 
and, and they all have that same sense that the pressure and the heat is, is kind of ramping up. And what are we going to do? What we're going to do is what we are doing, and that's studying the Word and see what the Bible says. Part of the reason why we're in First Peter is to make sure that we have these concepts down. Now, interesting fact, uh, loosely, I'll put it that way. I, I, we, I tried to look up these statistics. I don't think they're available probably for good cause because China's pretty close to information. But Tim and I were talking uh, recently. There's possibly more Christians in China than everywhere else on the globe. Possibly more Christians in the country of China than anywhere else on the globe, combined. Part of the reason we don't know, we, kind of talk, we can't get the information. They don't want us to have the information. Estimates kind of range from 25 to 50 million. Um, all desiring one thing in common. This we know. They desire strength to persevere persecution rather than to avoid it. That's their prayer. A lot of our thoughts and worry and, and anxiety is, is trying to get some sort of, you know, end around deal when it comes to persecution. Like, ah. Eh, it's kind of like football play, you know. All the, all the meat and the muscle is in the middle, and the speedy, fast guys, they get out on the edge and want to go. And that's kind of our mentality when it comes to tough things, when it comes to suffering, specifically. But where the church is pu- persecuted the most, there's purity and there's growth. Let's bear that in mind. So all that Peter's been saying is leading to this truth. Suffering in light of future hope impacts how we live today. It's going to impact how we serve, how we interact, how we live together. So in the middle of talking about suffering, Peter starts talking about our service. Look at verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Uh, interesting understatement by Peter, right? Everybody's feeling that noise. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another. As good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anybody ministers, let him do so as with the ability which God supplies. That in all things God might be, may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And we could probably close in prayer as we follow Peter's admonition here. What does it take to live in perilous times? What does it take to survive persecution, trials, and tribulations that, to a certain degree, we've all faced at various levels? Probably not to the degree that these people have faced. Maybe that's coming. We don't know. We don't know. But the reality is, is are we prepared If we had the ability to look into the persecuted believers today, I think that we would see Christians who are living out these verses 
with these things in front of them, joy, unity, love, and grace with a sense of hopeful survival rather than convenience. The persecuted church today is living with a sense of hope and purpose because what they know and really what we know is exactly what we've already said. Nothing can touch you. Nothing can touch you. May kill the flesh. May kill the flesh around you. But nothing can touch, if you're in Christ, nothing can touch that part of you that is eternal. And so they live with this sense of, what did I call? Hopeful survival rather than hopeful convenience. I love convenience. The internet starts to get a little bit weird. The Wi-Fi is weird at our place. <clears throat> like this last fall, we bought this little, what, uh, what was that, little range extender. My cousin comes over with his cousin. They, wanna, they come over for hunting every year. And so he comes home from town. We, I didn't buy it. My cousin bought it. This little tiny square little range extender. Man, I thought that that was like a gift from God. Because it got the Wi-Fi out of our house and into like the yard. And then I got to thinking, well, if it'll reach that far, maybe it'll reach the shop. Do you know how transforming it is to have Wi-Fi in my shop? All the guys are starting to nod and smile and all the ladies are like, who cares? Right? It's transforming. It's convenient is what it is. I don't have to wash my hands and take off my boots to go look up a part on the internet. I can do it from the shop. It's convenient. We're addicted to our conveniences if we're honest with ourselves. Very addicted to our conveniences. Peter's given us a great list of five ways to engage in the body of Christ. To be involved, the interactions that we have in and amongst one another, uh, in and amongst the larger church, uh, in and amongst uh, the days that we live in, the things that are going on around us in our culture, the things that are going around us, you know, in a, in a uh, national way, in a global way. Peter gives us some super keys that almost seem too simple. Let's go through them real quick. He says, be alert. In other words, let's be serious about our faith. I don't know how many people in this country, uh, when they fill out a survey, they would say that they're a Christian, the question I have is, uh, are we serious about our faith? I, I don't care what box you check on a survey or, you know, a census. Are you serious about what you say you believe? Peter's saying be serious. Let's be serious and watchful in our prayers. Jesus gives us a great word and picture in Matthew ten six. He says that we're to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Wise as serpents and innocent as doves. We need to know what's going on around us. We need to be watchful. We need to be prayerful. Above all things, so really the top of the list, above all things, Peter says, be fervent in our love for one another. A hundred times uh, in the New Testament, one another's, there's one another's that are mentioned. Fifty-nine of those times are actually direct commands for you and I about how we should treat and interact and uh, care for one another. 
Are we fervent in our love for one another? That will be the testing point if you want to know when the heat comes down, if it comes down. The testing point is, is how much do you love one another? Like, what are you willing to sacrifice for one another? What game plan, what hope, what strategy, you know, what, what uh, scheme, uh, what desires in life? What are you willing to sacrifice for one another? Not just, it's not just a husband and wife thing. It's not just a family thing and family units. Like, what are we willing to sacrifice in the body? What desire are we willing to sacrifice to be fervent in love for one another? That's the question on the table. What are you willing to do for one another? How far are you willing to go to show your love and care for the believers that are around you? That's Peter's question. That's why he says, above all else. Like that's, gonna, that's the engine that's going to run your, your, your car, so to speak. That's what's going to fuel your relationships with one another. It's not common interest. It's not political ideology. It's not, you know, that we all have kids the same age, or now we all have, we're grandma and grandpas, we all have grandkids, we can talk about. Those are great, those are great things. I'm not saying those are bad. What fuels our love for one another, what fuels our relationships is our love for one another because we're doing exactly what Jesus did for us. That's how much he loves us, right? So, love for one another. Look up those direct commands. I think in my office I have them printed out in my desk. There's a bunch of them. Uh, be sociable. Be sociable. Be hospitable without grumbling. Uh, we can't be the church without building relationships. And you can't have relationships when we're not together. That's why we're here at least once a week. That's why we're going to be here once a week. Uh, I believe we're all in this camp together. That the, the month and two weeks that we didn't have church in the building, it was horrible. I'm telling you up front, I hated it. It was the hardest. Uh, guys that would show up because we're filming in the back room and, and I would get done and they're like, oh man. I was like, that was the worst I absolutely, and it's not the camera, it's not like filming, it doesn't bother me, I'm not like camera shy in some sort of way. No, I miss you guys. I miss all of the interactions that happen from when the doors are first unlocked to the last person leaves, usually me, or David, and that's just because David's slow. I miss all of that, and I know that you guys missed all of that, and I know that uh, this is a real true deal. I know that there's lots of people out there that miss all of this. They miss the interaction. And so we're called to be hospitable. We're called to have one another in our homes. We're called to get together. We're called to host. And we're to do it, and he gives us just one directive in that. Don't whine about it. Like this is, an, this is a tangible way that we can show love for one another. Have people over. Have people over. Well, I don't have the gift of hospitality. Get over it. Some people are better at it than others. I'm not particularly good at it. But that doesn't mean that we just don't have people over. Right? Be hospitable. Be sociable. 
pretty counterculture right now. The fourth one I'll spend a few extra minutes on. And I used a particular word that I think is true and uh, right in the situation. The fourth way to engage in the body of Christ is to be guardians. Are you a guardian? Do you see yourself as a guardian in the body of Christ? And here's what I specifically mean. When I say guardian, I'm looking at it this way. A guardian is somebody that's a good steward. God's gifted us with 300 acres. I know every single, you know, square foot of that property. That's, that's, that's my part, if you will, or our part of what God's called us to steward, to take dominion over, to care for, to be a good shepherd of in as far as like a physical place. That's our part. We have a similar type of part in the body of Christ to be guardians, to be good stewards. And here's what Peter is encouraging them and teaching them to be good stewards of. Right there in verse 9, verse 10, sorry. Uh, As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another. Uh, Do we realize that what God has given us by way of gifts is not for our personal benefit? Uh, God has not gifted you spiritually. It's not the same as you going to Costco and buying a truck full of toilet paper. So you can stuff it in the back room and just use it a little bit at a time. It's not that way. God's given you gifts. He's given me gifts so that you and I and all of us, look across, you guys look across the room, both look left and right across the room. All of these people that you're looking at, all these people that I'm looking at from up here, you're all gifted, and that gift is to be uh, in use, is to be put engaged in the body of Christ. We follow that? So the things that, that God has gifted Josh with can be spread across the body. And the things that God has gifted Michaela with, you guys are all beneficiaries of her gift of administration, by the way. Do you guys get that? Behind the scenes, all the tinkering and rattling around she does on the computer and in the office. Same with David. Same with everybody. You just look across the room. I just use only a couple of examples to see how it's widespread. It's not up to a couple. From the youngest to the oldest, you're gifted, and that gift is to be ministered in the body. If you don't know what it is, today is an awesome day to start praying and seeking the Lord and saying, God, how's you gifted me? How can I put it into put it into place? So, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another. Engage your faith in the body. And here's the guardian piece. As good stewards of the manifold grace of God. The manifold grace of God. If you look up the definition of manifold, uh, it kind of gives you two looks. The first one is many and various. And the second one is the one I'm more familiar with. And that's a pipe or chamber branching into several openings. Every single vehicle out here in the parking lot has got an intake and an exhaust manifold. If it doesn't have it on, if you don't have one in your car, you will not be leaving the parking lot this afternoon. That means that somebody's out there, (laughs) I need this. Right? The manifold, the manifold on the engine 
is where all the fuel and the oxygen come in and then it's dispersed out to the pistons. Without that dispersion and without our, uh, the dispersion of grace, I'm going to use those terms that Peter's talking about here, the church isn't going to run right. The church isn't going to function correctly. Right? So that's how the, that's how the, uh, the gifts are distributed they're distributed through the manifold grace of God. Four times this word manifold is used in the Bible. I'm going to give you these real quick. I'll speed through them. Uh, the first one, the manifold mercies. Nehemiah talks about in, in Nehemiah 9.19. Yet in your manifold mercies, Nehemiah is talking about God, uh, talking to God. In your manifold mercies, you did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not depart from them by day to lead them on the road, nor the pillar of fire by night. Nehemiah is recounting what God did for the nation of Israel in the wilderness. And he says, it's God, he says, God, it's your manifold mercy that's being just spread out like butter on toast over these people. Not really deserving your manifold mercy. This is your decision. That manifold mercy showed him which way to go, Nehemiah says. The second one is Psalm 104, 24, where the psalmist says, Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. So the manifold works of God. The third one is the only really negative one that's used in the Bible. Uh, and uh, for good reason, Amos 5.12 says, For I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins, afflicting the just and taking bribes, diverting the poor from justice at the gate. Uh, Amos was, uh, read Amos 5 for yourself. Amos 5 is absolutely ripping the people. So he talks about their manifold transgressions. Not little one little mess up. No, there was sin uh, spilled on the floor here. So he talks about that. The last two are found in the New Testament. The first one is Ephesians 3.10, where Paul says, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the church, to the principalities and the powers in the heavenly. The manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church. As a church, as a Christian, I don't care what church you go to, as a Christ follower, you have a responsibility. I have a responsibility to demonstrate and declare the wisdom of God. Sometimes that's in a rebuttal. Sometimes that's in a, a rebuke. Sometimes that's by way of encouragement. Sometimes it happens through correction. But that's a part of our role, is to, to proclaim God's wisdom, to proclaim God's plan. The last one, of course, is the one we've been studying in 1 Peter 4.10, the manifold grace of God. Uh, it's an interesting study. I would encourage you to kind of pick up. Go back through, if you would, sometime this week, and put context to all uh, of these passages. Um, it's, uh, it's really enlightening. The fourth thing that Peter encourages us here uh, is this idea, is to engage. Work with the ability that God supplies. Work with the ability 
that God supplies. If anyone ministers, let him do so as to the ability which God supplies. Right? You have what you have. You have what you have. God is supplying ability to minister. Use what you have. I, personally, I think it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a growing work, as it were. I've been doing this for a while, but I was not trained, taught. Uh, the first time I stepped up on a pulpit, I was scared to death. And I'm shaking, I'm trying to like, you know, put my hands in my pockets. I'm trying to think like, how do I even start? And I said, uh, first words out of my mouth was, I said, this would be way easier if instead of leaning on a pulpit, we were leaning over a Chevy truck having a conversation. And that's exactly what I thought. And I've kind of carried that with me as kind of this funny, you know, startup line. Use the ability, this, what God supplies for you today. He'll supply it. If there's to be more there, He will add to it. Right? If anyone ministers, let him do so with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified. The goal is not how good of a speaker I am. The goal is not how good or bad of a speaker you are. That's not why we're here. Because Mark's funny. Because I don't think I'm really that funny. I think a lot of you guys are way more funnier than I am, actually. Is funnier a word? I don't think it's a word. Anyway, my point is, is to say, it's not about preference. It's not about preference. It's about simply responding to God's call on your life. Because we all have that. Not just me. We all have it. Work with what God has for you today and keep moving forward. Engage is the word. Engage. Nobody on the bench. There are times I would say, I guess maybe I'll correct myself. We've talked about that. That, that a body, a local body needs to be a safe harbor for people that are, are kind of recovering in life from whatever. But that recovery is not to then sit on the end of the pine, sit on the end of the bench. The pine's kind of an old-fashioned word for like being the last person that's going to get in the game. Don't be that person. That's not the reason that why we're here to recover is just to do nothing. We're here to engage with one another. So let's be about that component. How we interact as the church today says indefinitely more than every sermon preached. How we treat one another, how our relationships go, how we uh, grow together as a body is going to say way more to the people that are staring in the windows of this fellowship and really every fellowship. It's going gonna, it's gonna to speak volumes over the sermons that come from this pulpit. I will guarantee you that. We have to be mindful of that in the days that we live in. Peter goes on to say, let's jump back into the passage here, verse 12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trials which is to try you, although some strange thing has happened to you. Uh, Peter's using an interesting phrase here in light of current events in the first century. He uses that phrase, fiery trial, which if we don't know the historical context, we can kind of gloss over and say, well, that's just a descriptive language of whatever tribulation they were in. Uh, I don't think so. 
I think it's Peter's writing from Rome. He's well aware of what's going on in Rome. Uh, he's up on current events in Rome. And what had happened in Rome was Rome was torched in 64 A.D. And the emperor blamed Christians for that fire. And he used that, politi- he used that situation politically to put the people in the Roman Empire in opposition and, and have them have this downhill, uh, scowly look and, and view of Christ's followers. He used it politically. Okay? So Peter says the fiery trial is not just, you know, kind of a funny language thing. I think he's saying, hey, 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 listen. The fiery trial. Don't think it's strange that the fiery trial, which is to try you, because they're all now being persecuted because of a literal fire, as though something strange is happening to you. We have to have that same mentality, folks. Whatever will or won't happen in coming days, if there's persecution involved, if there's a pushback against Christianity involved, don't think it's strange. It's not strange. It's a natural course. Don't think it's strange. He says, rather than thinking it's strange, and here's encouragement for us today, but rejoice to the extent that you partake in Christ's sufferings. Rejoice, verse 13, to the extent that you partake in Christ's sufferings. That when, when his glory is revealed, you may be glad with exceeding joy. So we have rejoice and we have exceeding joy. Because if we suffer for our faith, when we suffer, I'll put it in that context, not if. When we suffer for our faith, we're partaking in a way and in a sense with Christ's sufferings. We're identifying with his sufferings on our behalf by suffering because of his namesake and because of who he's called us to be. And that's not a bad thing. We have to get over this hurdle as a church. We ha- the ch- I'm talking to the church in large. Because like I mentioned, we're running from suffering as fast and far as we can go. We have to see there's going to be a time and a day perhaps where we take a stand and we say, no, this is where the line's drawn for me. This is where the line's drawn for us as Christ's followers. And if we suffer for that, and suffer for doing good, as Peter has talked about in previous verses, not evil, not rebellion, not lawlessness, not that, but if we suffer for doing good, then it should be create joy. It's a strange dynamic, but it's true. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, be, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you, Peter says. Peter's encouraging the church to be true to God, to trust that he has this good plan. And if you suffer for him, you're going to be blessed. You're not going to be just blessed. You're going to be anointed in that process. And you have the Father with you, Peter says. He goes on to say, on their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he's glorified. Another dynamic of suffering on behalf of Christ. The world sees it as as a way to uh, curse God. 
right? When you stand for Christ, in that moment of standing for Christ, and the author of this letter stood for Christ, and his wife stood for Christ the day before. She was martyred the day before he was, if we know our church history. The last thing he told her was something to the effect, remember Jesus. Right? So she went first, he went the next day, refused to be crucified, he was crucified up down, upside down, historians tell us. But in that process, know that there's going to be a difficulty there because the world is going to use your standing for Christ as a way to curse God, to blaspheme God. And in Him being blasphemed in that moment and you standing firm and trusting Him, that's the point of glorification that happens. That's when Christ is raised up. And guess what happened in this first century church? In first century, churches grew because of these events. Because as the world was trying to squish Christianity out of existence, the more that these types of literal events happened, the more the church grew. The more people said, whoa, actually I like that idea. I think I'm going to go investigate. And they saw a change in people. They saw an earnest and an and a intentionality to people's lives to follow what they believed. And they were drawn to it. They saw men who actually loved their wives. They saw wives who were submitting to their husbands, allowing him to lead the home. They saw homes that were coming into order out of a chaotic world and culture. They're like, oh, why are they being persecuted? Why is, why is Rome so down on these Christians? Like, I don't, what people started to see was is that what the Christians were doing was actually good. So why in the world would they be under persecution? It didn't make sense. And the more they started to ask questions, the more there was a curiosity and a genuineness to the Christian's faith, the more people that were attracted. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, or an evildoer, or, uh, strangely put, I don't think Peter's wrong, uh, this is, has a high potential of being offensive and if it is maybe we need to be offended he says but let none of you suffer as a murderer a thief an evildoer or as a busybody in other people's matters e. and all God's people said e. we have to be able to find something to laugh at verse 16 yet if anyone suffers as a Christian let him not be ashamed but let him glorify God in this matter Verse 17 is a uh, verse that's been widely used in a lot of ways, uh, not often used in the context of Christian suffering. I think that that's a real mistake to take this verse out of context. Peter says, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. That's in the context of him talking about Christian suffering for, for Christ's name. Not just that we need slapped around, and, uh, you know, a sharpening up. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Charles Persian has a way of cutting to the chase. I want to give you this quote. It is right for judgment to begin at the house of God, Spurgeon says. There's equity in it. For Christians profess to be better than others, and so they ought to be. 
They say they're regenerate, and so they ought to be regenerate. They say that they are holy people, separated unto Christ, so they ought to be holy and separated from sinners, as he was. Like Spurgeon just like gets right to it. Judgment needs to start here in that way. Not because I think that we're horrible and, and, and I need to preach you know, some downhill message to make you leave here feeling guilty. That's not where I'm coming from at all. I'm coming by way of, folks, we have to be prepared. Prepared is the right word. The fire that we endure now is going to have this effect. It's going to have a purifying effect. The fire we endure now purifies us. The fire the ungodly will endure will be punishment. For those who are following Christ, for those who are claiming His name, for those of us that are going to endure persecution in coming days, that fiery trial will purify you. The same fire that melts the straw and consumes it purifies the gold. So be gold in God's eyes. Be who He's called us you to be. We have to be who He's called us to be. Right? So there's a purifying effect that Peter's laying in here. Don't get stumbled up on the judgment piece. Remember this, that there's never any punishment from God for our sufferings as Christ followers. There's never any punishment from God for us in our sufferings, only purification. That's for the believer. If trials and tribulations come your way, and many of us have gone through to some degree or another. It is for one purpose and one purpose only for the Christ follower. It's not punishment. It's purification. Embrace it. Engage with it. Understand what God's purposes are in our lives. For the, Christu, the, for the Christian, the issue of punishment was settled once and all for all on the cross where Jesus endured all the punishment that the Christian could ever face from the Father. As I mentioned earlier, the same fire that consumes straw will purify gold. The fire is the same, but the purpose in application is different. Its effect is different upon the straw and the gold. Even so, Christians do suffer some of the same things that the ungodly do. Yet again, the purpose and the effect is different. If we understand what God's doing in tough things, if we understand what God is doing in the situation that we are called to endure, if we understand in that day when it's way more prevalent what's going on and, and there's way more of a direct pushback against the Christian faith, we have to understand this. God is purifying us. He's making us holy. And Peter concludes with this remark in the worship team, if you want to come on up. The summary of the whole chapter, and really kind of an inserted summary of the book, <clears throat> in a lot of ways, Peter says this in verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. That's Peter's encouragement. That God's our faithful creator and he's doing a good thing even in the tough things that we will endure. Even in the difficult hours that we will uh, uh, come against and come into. And that he's not left us or forsaken us. 
He's not, he's not abandoning us when things get tough. Not in any way. He's, as we see in the Old Testament, he will be this. Mark my words, he will be in the fire with you. He will be in the fire with us as we face difficult days. He will be in the fire when you're suffering the most. He will be right there, right there with you. Guaranteed. That's the nature of the God that we follow. That's the essence of how he loves us. That's the essence of how he cares for you and me. It's not to dangle us out on a string, see what happens. No, it's to come in with the embrace. It's to come in with the love. It's to come in and say, hey, 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 your penalty, I got it covered. Your payment for your life of sin, I got it covered. Not only do I, not only am I paying the tab on your sin, guess what? I have a whole new life for you. It's not always going to be easy. It's not always going to seem fair. Mark this down. Fairness evaporated in the Garden of Eden. That's when fairness left. It's not going to be fair or seem fair. But the things I'm doing in your life and the things that I'm doing in the life of my church are going to be good, even if they're hard. They're going to be a great thing because it's going to display how awesome I am in a world that hates me. And some, and some out there, and I'll guarantee in the coming days there will be some that see your suffering and say, wow, I sure would have fought that. Wow, I would have responded differently. Wow, I would have had a different view on that. What, what, makes, what makes him respond differently to what's going on than me? The conversation's going to sprout up. There's going to be this opportunity to say, this is why I act differently. Here it is for you. Let's worship together.